Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 29. The title to our message this morning is The Ninth Plague, The Abandonment of God. And as we're turning to Exodus chapter 10, please remember the great and precious promise that we, to, we are to draw near to God and he promises to draw near to us. Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we're here this morning on your day that we might not be conformed to the ways of the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, we pray that you would transform us now by your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, all to the glory of your name. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So we're in the ninth plague this morning, and hopefully what you've seen thus far is that in these 10 plagues, uh, the Lord is decreating Egypt. So Egypt rebelled against the creator God, and so the creator God is decreating them. Listen to how one commentator puts it. The God who made the waters, Genesis 1-3, turned the Nile into blood. The God who made green things grow, Genesis 1-11, destroyed all green things with hail and locusts. The God who made creatures swim in the sea and swarm on dry land, Genesis 1-21, brought death to fish and frogs. The God who made men, Genesis 1-27, and beasts, Genesis 1-25, sent them disease and even death. 
Finally, the God who brought light out of darkness, Genesis 1, 3 through 4, made the light fade to black, end quote. Egypt was being decreated. Egypt is returning to chaos because Pharaoh would not obey the Lord. And I think there's a remarkable lesson from the book of Exodus that we see in all of these stories is that men cannot build nations on their own terms. This particular plague reminds us that when a nation abandons God, um, God abandons that nation to darkness. Just uh, don't do it right now, please, but uh, do a Google search later. Satellite imagery of North Korea at night. Uh, It's in darkness. It's economically and financially ruined because they worship other gods. Compare it to South Korea. It's amazing. Let's look at our big idea this morning. In the final judgment of a nation, God sends thick darkness, which signifies his abandoning that people. So let's begin then with our doctrine. Now, we've seen a pattern, three plagues, um, three series of three. And this, is, this ninth plague is the, the last plague in the final series of three. And in the last plague in each series, the plague had no warning. It was immediate judgment without opportunity to Pharaoh to repent or to mend his ways. And we're reminded that God does, in fact, strive with men. And he strives and he strives, but there comes a time where judgment comes swiftly and suddenly without warning. Look at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. In each of the previous plagues, we know that God was aiming at judgment of one particular God. Um, Here, the most supreme God, Ra, is saved for last. The Egyptians believed that Ra was the maker of the heavens and the earth. He was personified in the sun. Many ancient cultures, of course, worship the sun because there's nothing like it in all of creation. A great self-sustaining ball of nuclear fire that gives life to everything through its light and through its warmth. The Egyptians believed that at the end of each day, Ra, the sun, would return to the underworld and darkness would cover Egypt. But when he resurrected, he restored life to all things. Pharaoh's name was derived from Ra. Pharaoh, coming um, from the word Fra, uh, meaning sun, he was the human embodiment of Ra. And as such, he was responsible for the sun rising and setting every day. So in the Egyptians' eyes, it was Pharaoh's responsibility to maintain cosmic order. So when Yahweh plagued Egypt with darkness, it not only showed that Egypt's supreme God was a false god, but it brought national humiliation to uh, Pharaoh, which was Ra's human embodiment. Notice in verse 21, darkness over the land of Egypt. 
This was not a blackout caused by a sandstorm or an eclipse. In fact, the longest, supposedly the longest um, recorded eclipse in history was 7 minutes and 27 seconds on June 15th, 743 BC. Seven minutes. But repeatedly in our passage, we read that this darkness lasted for three days. The end of verse 21 says, it was a darkness to be felt. The Hebrew word is used elsewhere to uh, describe a literal feeling with the hand or with the skin. So in Genesis 27, it says that Isaac felt, or uh, Jacob felt his son Isaac. Sorry, other way around. Isaac felt his son Jacob. In, in Judges 16.26, uh, Samson said to the young man, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests. This was a darkness so thick they could feel it with their hand. Uh, it was a blanket of darkness. It was thick and dense and heavy darkness. Imagine like from the Lord of the Rings movies when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas were in under the mountain trying to find the men and and Gimli was trying to blow the darkness away from him, that misty fog. Verse 22 amplifies this darkness. We read, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness. Literally, it's a dark darkness. That's what the Hebrew word means. There was a dark darkness in Egypt for three days. Uh, three is significant here. Like the numbers seven and 10 in scripture, it often rep represents completeness or perfection. Uh, our God is three in one. Uh, there is a triad of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a complete evil. So here, this three days of darkness represented a complete and full and perfect darkness in the land. Verse 23 says, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. They were so blind, they couldn't even see another human being. And this paralyzed them so that they were afraid to even leave their homes or to walk around. Imagine that would, what that would be like for a moment. How do you go to the bathroom in pitch darkness? How do you do anything? How do you uh, work or bathe or eat or drink? You can't. In fact, more than one commentator speculated that even the, the candlelight that they tried to uh, bring around was suffocated by the thick darkness. Imagine that, trying to start up a flashlight only to have the light sucked into the darkness. Like Egypt was this black hole and every particle of light and ray of light was sucked into its vortex. <laughs> but we must ask the question, what does darkness represent elsewhere in Scripture? Well, darkness is, is first mentioned in Genesis 1-2. It says that the earth was without form, and void, so it was without form, it was chaotic, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So darkness first represented the chaos that overwhelmed the, the earth prior to God finishing creation. But additionally, 
Elsewhere in Scripture, darkness represents the deeds of the wicked, Ephesians 5.11. It represents lawlessness, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Darkness represents the domain of Satan, Colossians 1.13. It represents being in a lost state, Ephesians 5.8. It represents futility, Ecclesiastes 5.17. Affliction, Ecclesiastes 11.8. It represents sorrow. Psalm 139.11, it represents blindness, Acts 13.11, it represents punishment, Psalm 35.6, death, Job 10.20-21, 20 and hell, Matthew 8.12. Now, if, if all of that was symbolized by this darkness, that would be bad enough, but, but the one thing that is worse than all of these is that darkness represents the abandonment of God himself. Please turn with me to 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. What does it mean when light is withdrawn? It means that God has left. It means that God has forsaken. The, the plain announcement in this plague is that God has now abandoned Egypt. And that's why this is the worst plague thus far. I mean, reviewing the plagues. The, in the first plagues, uh, Egypt lost their comfort when the Nile turned to blood and the, the frogs and the gnats and the, the flies invaded the land. The Egyptians then lost their economy when their livestock died. They, they lost their health when they were struck with boils and they lost their food supply with the hail and with the locusts. But in this plague, they lost God. You might say, well, well, they were, already, they were already a polytheistic pagan culture. Well, that's true. But who was holding that culture together? God was. This darkness marked the end for Egypt. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. In the final judgment of a nation, God sends thick darkness, which signifies his abandoning that people. Let's consider Three proofs of this. The first proof is the darkness in Babylon. The darkness in Babylon. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Now here in Isaiah 13, notice the subtitle at the beginning of the chapter. What does it say? It says, the judgment of Babylon. Now, how does God describe this judgment? Look in verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce with anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So this is apocalyptic language. 
there wasn't a physical darkness in Babylon per se. Uh, as, as we just read in Genesis 37, the sun and the moon and the stars uh, represent uh, symbols of government. Joseph's parents were represented as sun, moon, and stars. Uh, in Judges, kings are represented as sun, moon, and stars. Here, the sun, moon, and stars represent Babylon's government, their civil order. So in threatening to remove the light of the sun um, and the moon and the stars, God was threatening to destroy the nation. Uh, Jesus uses similar language to this in the book of Revelation when he threatens to remove the lampstand in the churches. Uh, without God's light, without his presence, no church can exist. And likewise, without God's light, without his presence, no nation can exist. Let's turn secondly. Our pr proof number two is the darkness in Samaria. Uh, turn with me to Amos chapter eight. So if, if you find Daniel, it's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Amos chapter eight. Now, the whole book of Amos is God declaring judgments against particular cities, against Damascus, against Gaza, against Tyre, against Edom, against Ammon, against Moab. In chapter 8, he takes aim against Samaria. Look at what he says in verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In, in verse 11, he talks about how he's going to bring a famine on the people of Samaria, not a famine of food, but a famine of the word of God. And that famine of the word of God is darkness. He's abandoning Samaria. Proof number three, the darkness in Jerusalem. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Now again, Notice the, the, the subtitles are not inspired, but they are very helpful to understand what the, the context of the chapter is. Notice the subtitle at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus foretells destruction of the temple. The Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, how significant was that event? It meant the fall of the entire Old Testament system of worship. Not because God made a mistake, but because Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of it all. And it meant that the Jewish people were going to be punished sevenfold, those seven woes in Matthew 23, for the rejection of Christ. God was taking away the kingdom from the Jews, Matthew 21, 43, and he was giving it to a people that would produce fruit. And this destruction was so cataclysmic that Jesus describes it in terms of the universe collapsing and Jerusalem being given over to darkness. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. See, there's, there's congruity in the scriptures. What happened to Egypt when God decreated her happened to Jerusalem. And someone might say here, well, why use all this language of sun, moon, and stars? Why use this symbolism of darkness? It's all confusing. Why not just speak to us plainly? 
I would just ask you a question. What, can you think of plainer speech that would be more suitable to describe God abandoning a people? If God abandons a people, it is not hyperbole to say that the universe is collapsing. Uh, Children, uh, boys and girls, I know something about you. I know that you are afraid of the dark. I know it. Because I'm still afraid of the dark. But you might not know why you're afraid of the dark. Why is your soul afraid of the dark? Why does it frighten you? Because God hardwired it in you for you to know that darkness is a sign of the absence of God's gracious presence. That's why the dark is scary. If God abandons a nation, there's nothing left but chaos and lawlessness and affliction and death. God is light, and outside of his presence, there's only darkness. So God turned off the lights in Egypt, not merely to defeat Ra, but to signal to them that their end has come. So that's our doctrine, that in the final judgment of a nation, God sends thick darkness, which signifies his abandoning that people. So let's look now at our duty then. We have three of them, and our first duty is just to consider how Egypt of old relates to our nation today. How does Egypt relate to America? Can you turn with me to Leviticus 18? There are different, many different, in fact, types of darkness in Scripture. Um, There is a spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is when a people is given over to idolatry, when they worship other gods. Clearly, Egypt worshiped other gods. She was in spiritual darkness. Doesn't America worship other gods? Doesn't that mean that as a nation that we are in spiritual darkness? But secondly, there's a social darkness. This flows from the first. Having different gods uh, results in a society that practices wickedness, dark things. Look at what Egypt practiced before her ruin. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Now, what what did they do? Well, that's what the rest of the chapter is telling us. They practiced incense, incest, not incense. Uh, Verses 6 through 16, they they practiced polyamory, verses 17 through 18. They practiced adultery, verse 20. They practiced infanticide, verse 21. They practiced sodomy, verse 22. They practiced bestiality, verse 23. They were in social darkness, and their contagion spread throughout society. Does America suffer from that contagion? Don't we practice the same things? Doesn't that mean that we are in social darkness? 
look what the Lord did to them in the end. In verses 24 and 25, we read, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. God punished Egypt and Canaan for its social darkness. If he did that then, will he not do that now? Do you see the peril that our nation is in? That brings us then to our second duty. We must shine the light that we have. Being a Christian comes with duties, with responsibilities, with opening our mouth, with doing good works. Please turn back with me to Exodus chapter 10. I want you to, to see in verse 23 one more time. It says, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Goshen had light. And remember, Goshen was the middle region in Egypt, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. It was surrounded by Egypt. And so this light that they had was a supernatural light. It wasn't merely physical. Egypt, uh, Israel was the light of the Egyptian world. And a multitude of Egyptians left Egypt with Israel because Israel radiated the light of God. Your congregation, what does the New Testament say about Christians? Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Nobody else on earth except for Christians alone have light. What are we to do with it? Put it under a bushel, right? Hide it. Cap it off. No, Jesus says in the very next verse, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the people in the house. The house of America is in spiritual and social darkness, and if things continue the way they are, how can God not bring the sun and the moon and the stars down in our country? I implore you, let your light shine. Uh, You know, here we are, in the middle of, of so-called Pride Month. And before the month began, my heart sank just like your heart sank because you knew you are going to be bombarded with every ungodly advertisement under the sun. But this is actually an opportunity for us to let our light shine. It, it's an opportunity to speak against the darkness. Um, the great temptation for Christians is to succumb to quietism with a Q, not a P. Quietism. Quietism was a spiritual movement that emerged in the 17th century, and it emphasized a passive and contemplative approach to spirituality. Quietism promoted a withdrawal from the world of action. As one author says, Quote, quietism leads to fatalism. Everything is going to happen irrespective of what we do. Therefore, you withdraw from the world and you say, let things happen because they are going to happen. 
And the quietest surrenders the world to the devil. Dear congregation, Moses was not a quietist. Um, How many times does he confront Pharaoh? How many times does he call on Pharaoh to repent and obey? Christians are not called to be quietists. Uh, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you realize that confronting the culture of darkness is actually a good work? It's a good work. Daniel confronted Nebuchadnezzar's uh, darkness. Uh, Therefore, O king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness, Daniel 4.27. That was a good work. John the Baptist confronted uh, King Herod in Mark 6.18. That was a good work. The abolitionists in the 19th century confronted the evil slave trade, and that was a good work. Our culture must be confronted with light, and Christians are the only light that exists in this world. Let your light shine. I've talked to some of you, and and I've heard really encouraging reports that some of you have already been doing this in your places of employment with your family, with your friends, and I'm so encouraged to hear these stories. But let me further challenge all of us. God is not calling us back to a moralism. He's not calling us to a a mere conservatism, a red, you know, state, big R. It's not what God is calling us to. God is calling us to, to proclaim that the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords over the nations. We need to return to the Lord. We need to look our culture in the eyes and say, if we continue on this path, the Lord will abandon us. And we need to pray. Pray for opportunities, loved ones. Pray for opportunities to shine your light in spheres of influence. Pray for boldness of speech as the saints of old did. Pray to be men and women of action. Our third duty then is to rebuke halfway repentance. Pharaoh offered a halfway repentance in our passage. He was terrified of the darkness, and so he called Moses. Look at what takes place in verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Pharaoh learned from last time that he had to let the children go, but... Now he's refusing to let their animals go, which is the very thing that God required of them for worship. And this is how unconverted men try to negotiate with God. They say, okay, God, I'll serve you. But then they don't surrender their entire life to God. Listen to how one author puts it. The natural man will say, the sinner's prayer, so long as they don't have to go to church every week. Or they will go to church so long as they don't have to get baptized. Or they will get baptized so long as they don't have to get involved. Or they will give some of their time as long as they don't have to give any of their money. Or they will give some of their time as long as they don't have to give any of their money. 
Or they have to give part of themselves to God as long as they don't have to give him everything. In short, they are willing to become Christians as long as they can still live for themselves. That's halfway repentance. Um, And it cannot save anyone. God will have all of us or he will have none of us. All of us as individuals, I mean. Moses tells Pharaoh as much in verse 26. He says, not a hoof shall be left behind. We have to be able to say that to our, our unsaved neighbors, that not a hoof shall be left behind. God requires all of you, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in Pharaoh's position, that you're an unconverted man, that you're in peril. If that's you, you're in spiritual darkness, but I would warn you that there is a darkness that's far worse to come that is an eternal darkness. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 12, that it is the outer darkness, place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. How, if the Egyptians couldn't stand under three days of darkness, how will you be able to stand under an everlasting, endless, infinite darkness? There's nothing more terrible. Not because it's, it's dark by itself, but because it's the abandonment of all of God's favor. Moses told Pharaoh, you will not see my face again. The person in hell will never see the kind face of God again. He'll only experience his wrath. And if that's you this morning, lift up your heart to the Lord. And, and call on his name. Say, Lord, take possession of me, body and soul. Rescue me, Father. Save me, Jesus. Fill me, Spirit. All that I am, all that I have is yours. Take me and do with me whatsoever your will and your pleasure demand. Don't suffer that eternal darkness, that abandonment of God. That brings us then finally to our delight. I know that whenever we talk about hell or talk about darkness, that the Christian's heart can be afraid. Why as Christians can we hear about this eternal darkness and not be afraid? Turn with me to Matthew 27. Why can we as Christians hear about eternal darkness and not be afraid? In Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, we have an account of the crucifixion of Christ. And we read this. Now from the sixth hour, it's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, that's three. There was three hours of darkness. Again, this is not an eclipse. We know this for two reasons. One, because we understand the Jewish calendar and there was no eclipse recorded at that time. And secondly, because eclipses don't happen for three hours. This was a supernatural darkness, just like the one in Egypt. It was three hours of darkness, similar to Egypt. It was a perfect darkness, similar to Egypt. Now notice... 
Matthew records that this darkness happened only while Jesus was on the cross. He was crucified in verse 44, and then the darkness began in verse 45, and it lasted until it breathed, until he breathed his last breath. Who was this darkness for? It wasn't for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's darkness was coming in 70 AD. This darkness was for Christ. Just as God abandoned Egypt and sent darkness, so the Father did with the God-man. Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus saw the darkness. He felt the darkness in the sky and he recognized that meant that God had forsaken him. God is light. In him there is no darkness. Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. Righteousness cannot have partnership with lawlessness. Christ was forsaken by the Father because he bore our lawlessness, our sin. And I want to be careful here. I don't mean that the Father forsook the second person of the Trinity, the, 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 the Father forsook the eternal Son. The Father and Son's fellowship cannot be broken. The Trinity can never suffer. I mean that the human nature of Jesus Christ suffered the full abandonment of God. And he did this for our sake. That's why we don't have to be afraid. Our Christ, our surety, our substitute already suffered the darkness for us. There's no darkness left for the Christian. There's no wrath left. There's no punishment left. Jesus said it is finished in the face of darkness. And what that means is that Christians can never be abandoned by God. And so take comfort, dear Christian. There's three amazing comforts in this passage. First, consider that, that just as Moses refused to bargain with Pharaoh, so Christ will never bargain with the devil. Jesus will not leave you behind. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Not one of his precious sheep will be left behind. John 6.39 says, This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing at all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And you might say, right at this point, well, but I'm one of those diseased sheep. I'm, I'm one of those weak sheep. I'm one of those sheep that continually fail. All the time. Surely he could leave someone like me behind. I would say, don't you know the gospel, my friend? Um, every sheep is a weak and tainted sheep. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no, no one righteous, no, not one. If Jesus were to leave the weak and failing sheep behind, he would leave all of us behind. But he says, not a hoof shall be left behind. I will have all of them. Not one of them will be lost. Jesus will have you, dear friend. Secondly, God gives light to his people even if the world all around us is in darkness. Goshen had the light of Christ. 
Dear congregation, take heart. Do you not perceive the favor that God has bestowed upon us? Yes, there's pharaohs today that are emanating their darkness, but God has made us to dwell in the light. Proverbs 3.33 says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. It's not for Christians to despair. Boys and girls, imagine being in Goshen. You're surrounded by Egypt, and you're looking at Egypt, and you're looking at the darkness of Egypt, and you start despairing of darkness that's happening over there. We're in the light. We're children of the light. It's not fitting for us to look around and despair. Our third comfort is that God still has plans for this present darkness. There's two clues in our passage. The first clue is that while Egypt was in darkness, God didn't lead Israel out. Um, he, he made them stay because there was more miracles that were coming. The second clue in our passage is that there's a clear cause and effect. In verse 27, is, we see the cause, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and the effect is Pharaoh would not let Israel go. The point here is that God's will is being exercised. It's not Pharaoh who is in control but God's will that is being done. God is the one that wouldn't let Israel leave Egypt because he still has wonders to perform. Loved ones, there's reasons why God has not let us leave this world yet. There's reasons why, there, why there's still generations of Christians who will not leave this world yet. He's, he still has mighty wonders to perform. He, he promises to bring a multitude out of this world. He's promised to leaven the whole lump, Matthew 13, 33. He's promised to cover the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah eleven nine. 9. He's promised to cause that stone to become a mountain so that it will fill the whole earth, Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. This world is not Pharaoh's, it's the Lord's. And he's not done with it yet. Darkness is fully under his control. Christ will have the prize for which he died. And not a hoof, not one hoof will be left behind. Let's pray. Father, we do tremble at your universe-shattering power at this plague. But God, as it is in, in all salvation, you accomplish two things. You accomplish the destruction of your enemies and the salvation of your people. So we thank you that the Lord God, Yahweh, that he is on our side, that he is our warrior, that he is our king, that he is our Lord. Lord, help us to live as children of the light. Help us to be people of action. Help us to rest in the knowledge that you are in control of the darkness. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.